This is an ABC podcast. Thank you very much. Hello there. Welcome to The Minefield, a show where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Walid Ali is my name, Scott Stevens is his name, and there is almost nothing normal about this edition of The Minefield for a couple of reasons. One of which is, uh, well, as we just heard, there's a live audience here, which is remarkable. We, uh, we don't normally let them in the studio, but here we are. So we're here at Carriage Works as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. That is one reason this is a totally unminefield minefield. The other reason is that unlike just about every other, every other yep. show that we've done, we actually know what each other thinks about this. Uh, we've spoken about the topic quite a lot to each other. Uh, we've even written it down. In fact, it's now published as a quarterly essay. But it's very rare that Scott and I would spend hours labouring on prose together to come up with a kind of um, shared set of ideas on a topic and then turn it into the minefield. Normally what happens with the minefield, of course, is that we have no idea what the other person thinks. Uh, the topic may be, well, to me at least, simply a word, and we just go from there. Uh, and then I proceed to be surprised that Scott could ever have got anywhere near the conclusions that he offers, and we proceed from that. So I don't really know what to do now, Scott. Mm. How do we proceed when we actually know each other's mind on something as well as we do on this particular topic? Well, probably the first thing to do is for your sake to give you a sense of maybe the mental geography of how we got to this point. If you've been listening over the mind, to the minefield over the course of this year, you'd know that at various points we've been wanting to interrogate what we've called, it's not just us, it's lots of people, we call them the moral emotions. And it's worth calling them moral emotions because the, it's not that the emotions themselves are moral or that the emotions have some kind of moral quality to them. Instead, it's the emotions are elicited by something that the person feeling those emotions feels as a morally significant event. So the ones that we, just to give you some idea of what we've talked about, we've talked about uh, resentment, we've talked about envy, we've talked about anger, we've dabbled a little bit with shame, we've even, was our show on nostalgia? Is that a moral emotion? I don't know. No, I don't think that counts. You don't think so? No, I don't. There you go. We had a disagreement. Okay. Excellent. This is a good start. No, because so, I, I don't think it's a moral emotion in quite the same it way. It can be a morally significant emotion, though, yeah, in I the sense that, I mean, if, if, if you think of nostalgia as the way one registers the sense that one has lost a world or that one has lost a sense of value, then that could gesture towards something like a longing for that loss, a corresponding desire to hold on to what's valuable. But this is interesting. What's interesting <laughs> about the little disagreement about nostalgia is that the emotions themselves aren't value neutral. So just because you've had it, just because you felt angry in response to some slight, or just because you felt angry in response to some piece of injustice, doesn't mean that that anger has an uncomplicated moral aspect to it. Moral emotions can communicate something important. That is unjust. The world should not be that way. If it's resentment, for instance, the moral emotion can be in response to there shouldn't be the inequality that exists in the world. But it's funny, when resentment tips over into something like envy, which isn't just the world shouldn't be this way, there shouldn't be those people with that much when these people have this little, when, envy, when resentment tips over into envy, I want what they have, or why haven't I got what they have? 
But you can feel, can't you, it begins getting into morally dicey territory. Mm, and, and I want to see them suffer in And I want to way. see them suffer for um, it, that's right. Which is, which is partly what separates envy, well, significantly what separates Can envy. I tell you one of my favourite jokes? Uh, sure. I mean, they've already laughed. This is a good start. I can never, <laughs> I can never remember jokes. And this one's so horrific. It, I don't know, it says something about me. That I, anyway, it was told to me by Slavoj Žižek, uh, this weird Slovenian philosopher. And only he, as soon as you hear it, only he could tell a joke like this. So there are two farmers living side by side. One farmer is out in the field, you know, doing what farmers do out in the field. He's probably hoeing something, probably with cows or something. <laughs> and, and, and of course, the farmer comes, you know where this is going, don't you? The farmer comes across in his nicely hoed field a lamp. Of course. of course, yes. And he picks up the lamp, and what does he do with it? He rubs it. He rubs the lamp, out pops a genie. A genie says, I give you any wish. Wish for whatever you like, but there's a catch. Whatever you wish for, I give double to your neighbor. Oh. And the farmer thinks and thinks and thinks, and then it comes to him. Genie, make me blind in one eye. <laughs> That's a good joke. That's not bad, is yeah, it? That's a good joke. Everything you need to know about the moral complications wrapped up with envy are right yeah. there. So anyway, moral emotions are complicated, yeah. aren't they? And that's why, for us, perhaps the most morally complicated emotion of them all is the one that Walid and I have argued is the air that we breathe. We are suffocating by it. And that's the emotion of contempt. What do you so think I think that? it's important, yeah. And I find it interesting um, that we ended up writing about it. So the title of the quarterly essay is Uncivil Wars, How Contempt is Corroding Democracy. And the thing I found significant about it is that we landed upon that, that word, that particular moral emotion, contempt, because actually it's not one you hear much about. Um, we tend to, th when we think about, I don't know, the increasingly cantankerous nature of public debate, for example, the sort of heightened moral emotions that seem to be flung between people, that seem to be infused in the, the air that we breathe together. We tend to talk much more about anger, which is undoubtedly one of the moral emotions and receives a lot of attention in moral philosophy as something that is at times legitimate, at times not, perhaps is legitimate in a circumstance, but then is not a reliable guide for action, for example. Or reliable within certain bounds. Yeah, yeah. so there's all kinds of, there's quite a rich um, moral philosophical and, and religious discourse on mm. something like anger. Um, contempt, however, is interesting because the fact that we don't talk about it, I think means, uh, and I can confidently say we think <laughs> means, that we've somehow misdiagnosed the problem that I think so many of us intuit exists within our public discourse. It's not merely that we're angry at one another. It's that we've elevated that to a level now of contempt for one another, such that disagreement uh, now connotes some kind of moral judgment upon the person with whom we disagree. That is, by virtue of the fact that I can identify your position on X issue, if it's an issue I care enough about, and let's face it, there are more and more issues that are falling into that category. If, simply by identifying that you disagree with me on that issue, I can now read from that into your whole character. And I can now dismiss you as a person, and we now have a public conversation that ceases to be a conversation because of a couple of things. One is um, I, I no longer have any regard for you. I don't need to consider your position 
I don't need to consider your full moral reality as another human being. Um, I can simply dismiss and move on. That's one consequence. Another consequence that I think flows from that is that the world that I'm seeking is not a world in which we both have a place. It's a world in which you don't have a place. I have a place because I'm right. I, I have a pl- and, and so we see this in phrases that are very popular now, like you know, um, being on the right side of history, etc. What's being connoted in those sorts of phrases uh, is an idea that really your job now is to get out of the way. Your job is to disappear somehow. It's a very different orientation to one that says, "Okay, we both exist within a we of some sort. Could be the nation, could be a society, whatever. We exist within that. Our job." despite our often visceral disagreements, is to figure out how we might arrive together at a common future, even though that disagreement may never go away. But how do we imagine a common future in which we both have a place? And that has really been the task of democracy. That's been actually one of the points of democracy. One of the the things that's interesting about democracy uh, is that the, the genius of it is that it makes politics in a way less important, less visceral, right. exactly. that it lowers the stakes. It's specifically resisting a kind of winner-take-all approach to politics. Um, you think of politics as something that is only really ever temporal. The wins are always compromised, they are always short-term, but so are the losses. And when you lose, when you find yourself on the losing side of a democratic argument or a democratic issue, you live to fight another day, and you have that fight, and so on. That's actually what lowers the overall democratic temperature and means that you avoid, at least in theory, more authoritarian forms of government because where winner takes all, you have to win. Mm. There, is, there is only winning. There is only victory and defeat. Democracy distinguishes itself really by being a politics not just of ends, not just of achieving good outcomes in sort of the modern managerial parlance, but it is also a politics of means. Yeah. It is about how we achieve these outcomes. It is a far better uh, democratic result to achieve a bad outcome by good means that can then subsequently produce a better outcome than it is to enforce what you consider to be a good outcome by bad means, because usually what that does is it leaves that outcome vulnerable to subsequent attack and the corrosion of, well, I suppose, the, the future health of that democracy. That's what's interesting about democracy. Contempt is inimical to it Mm. because what contempt is doing is compromising that very idea of a common future. Mm. It's saying that because I deprive you of your moral agency, really the common future is not one that I want to imagine with you, whereas democracy is all about that common future. This is an important diagnosis, or at least we felt it was, because as long as we make the conversation about anger, which is the easier, perhaps more fashionable approach, Uh, As long as we do that, we end in an argument where people say, how dare you deny me my anger? I have a right to be angry about it. You're now demanding that I cease to be morally serious about something. Mm. However, if we frame it around contempt, it seems to me that something changes in that, which is, no, no, there are times for anger, Mm. but all of these moral emotions that we might want to express, that we might occasionally feel in an involuntary way. All of them must preserve something fundamental, and that is the seriousness, the moral reality of our interlocutors. Once we lose that, then we have a public conversation that becomes dysfunctional, 
and something that simply doesn't work within a democracy. Can I pick up there? You, of course you can. The reason we wanted to ground this in democracy was really purposeful and morally weighty, I think, for both of us. There are three fundamental things that undergird democracy as democracy. So just in case you're thinking we're talking about an electoral system or a, an organized system of public debate and public deliberation, that's not quite it. There are three distinguishing factors, features of democracy as a moral reality or as a moral practice that we kind of hinge most of our argument on. The first one is the idea that arguments in a democracy are interminable. You will always have disagreements in a democracy. And in fact, any democratic victory that leads to the extinguishment of, your, of the opposing side is not a democracy. That then becomes a form of coercion. That means that elections are effectively zero-sum games where the part or the majority stands for the whole. And then if you don't come on board, if you don't accept that particular outcome, you have no voice, you have no say within democratic life. That is, democracy presupposes opposition. Exactly. So, so disagreements have to be interminable. They keep going. And the process of seduction and winsomeness and getting people on side, getting people to make small concessions, not the big headline issues, but maybe little accommodations to one another. And you slowly come together, come together, come together. That's how the hard moral work of consensus is built. What contempt does is contempt turns interminable disagreements into incommensurable disagreements. So interminable means we keep disagreeing. Incommensurable means we don't even have the same language within which to understand our disagreements. Think about pro-life, pro-choice. The disagreements just don't even match. You might as well be talking different moral languages. So that's a very, very, that's kind of one of the first and fundamental uh, animating ideas in the essay. The other idea is that democracy is predicated on a fundamental conviction of interpersonal equality, which simply means we are answerable to one another. There are only very, very few times and under very few circumstances under which democratic citizens within a common political community can be coerced to do something against their will. Those times are specific. Those times are appropriately rare because democracies depend on consent. And if you're being coerced into signing up to something or being dragooned into a particular position that you, in your heart of hearts, in your moral soul, can't subscribe to, then you can experience a condition of moral suffocation. You've got no way for your voice to be registered. You're being suffocated into a position of obeisance. So again, what contempt does is it says that your generation is passing away. This could be the soft contempt of demographic shifts. You're all dying out and the Victoria side will just come to the fore. Anyway. Or it could be the hard contempt of uh, history is bending away from you. Get on board or get out of the way. So that's, and then the third one, the third one, I, I'll shut up after this. Um, the third one, it seems to me, is also extremely important. And that's that democracy is not just the headline issues and the big events. Democracy is sustained by a series of common everyday practices. A, dem, a healthy democracy is nurtured by a healthy democratic culture, where we learn how to speak with one another. We learn the basic rules of rule following, of turn taking, that losses are never losses for good, but we can take our time together. We can find ways of appealing to one another. This is what we might mean by the moral practice of civility. Civility isn't politeness. 
Civility is treating one another in a manner that they are regarded as my equal, that I am answerable to you and that you're answerable to me. One of my favorite philosophers, Stanley Cavell, says that one of the conditions of democratic morality is that we are one another's teachers. At various points in our lives, you have something to say that I need to hear, that your very existence within a common community with me exerts a moral pressure on my life where I can't just sweep you to the side or use you as a means to getting where I want to go. So those are the three things that we feel hold democracy together as a moral ideal, as a moral reality. You can see, can't you, how contempt, treating someone as a moral inferior, treating someone as someone who's passing away, treating someone as a generalization. You're just one of those. You have nothing to say that I need to hear. You can see how contempt then cuts across each one of those fundamental positions along the, um, along the democratic axis. So we began this conversation by I don't know, referencing highfalutin things like moral philosophy. One of the things that's interesting, though, about contempt is that unlike so many of the moral emotions that we spoke about, moral philosophy seems to have had no real truck with contempt. It's true. Um, right back to Aristotle. I mean, if you find anything that Kant and Aristotle agree on and you disagree with Kant and Aristotle, then you're screwed. That's, kind of, that's one of those. <laughs> right. And this was yeah. certainly one of those things. Um, Kant, we, we talk about this... I think mercifully briefly, but we do talk about it uh, oh, in, in the essay. <laughs> I guess it depends what your proclivities are. But um, uh, Kant's position is actually one that I think is recognisable to many modern human minds who think about things like human rights. Kant is really anchoring his opposition to contempt in the idea that there is a fundamental worth to the human being that is inextinguishable. And so what contempt does is it, it extinguishes that worth or it seeks to extinguish that worth, to make that human being no longer a human for any relevant moral reckoning. And so as a result, it must be resisted and is under no circumstances acceptable. It's the, the Kantian position. But what's interesting, it's all well and good for us to recite this to you uh, and to talk about you know, a broad theoretical framework in which we can say contempt and democracy are opposites and they, they should not or they cannot really coexist. But what we're reckoning with here is not merely an environment in which contempt is common, mm. where it's what we call the coin of the realm in the essay. It's the, just the way we do business now. What's interesting, because, because that could happen because we've all succumbed to something that we agree we shouldn't succumb to, right? But that's not quite what's happened. What seems to be happening is not merely contempt's pervasiveness, but it's Legitimation. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So in other words, what's happening with contempt, the thing we're trying to point to here is that contempt has become uh, recast in a way that really human beings haven't done before as evidence of your moral standing. Mm, that's right. I am so moral that on this issue I regard you with contempt. This is how I register my moral seriousness is to express contempt. And express is important here uh, because contempt is different from something like resentment, which you can feel without expressing. The thing that makes contempt contempt is that it must be expressed. It's performative. Mm. I hereby hold you in contempt in a way that is observable to you and is observable to anybody who is watching this exchange. It's a, it's a disposition. It's a way of being towards one another. And we see this, don't we? in all manner of public discourse, where if I can express my position on a political issue 
such that it is expressed in heightened moral terms, but also in a way that shows that I, I really do hold anyone who disagrees with this in contempt, then what I am signaling is not merely my conviction on this particular issue, but my moral conviction, my moral seriousness. And your moral superiority. Yes. The idea of unevenness is crucial here. Why simply make yourself seem higher if in the process you can't also push someone else down? That's yeah, which is one of the inherent parts of the definition of contempt. What's fascinating about this is, I think, that this has become a moral stance. Mm, that's right. And there is moral philosophical work that goes along with this that is trying or is arguing for a kind of, I would say, rehabilitation of contempt, but that, that sort of implies that it, its legitimacy was once alive and we're seeking to retrieve that. It, it's actually kind of a new, in, or an invention of a, a newly licit hmm. thing, which is contempt. And that philosophical work is interesting because it's new. It's quite modern. What would you say? Three decades? Three decades, yeah. Something like that? Four decades? Yeah. Our first one was about 1992. Right. Yeah. But here, the way that it proceeds is fascinating for two reasons. One is it, it hangs a lot on this idea of legitimate contempt being something that is directed upward. So a distinction that must be drawn between upward and downward contempt. You see this in colloquial language particularly amongst comedians, for example, in the idea of punching down and, and punching up, this sort of language. So this idea that there exists some kind of hierarchy and that the way that people at the bottom of this hierarchy, and this hierarchy seems to be assumed to be stable, more or less linear, unproblematically observed. Um, the way people at the bottom of this hierarchy should respond to contempt is to hold those in contempt who are above them. This sort of upward contempt becomes a moral act. So it's interesting for, for that reason. But this raises, I think, a lot of questions about what happens in that process. And you, probably as you hear me describe it like that, you might go, oh yeah, that's actually a really, really good point. What's interesting though is in the philosophical work, the arguments that flow to try to support that sort of thing flow in a really, really restrained manner. So they say things, for example, the philosophers who will do this work will say things like, well, contempt becomes acceptable in these circumstances, but only where you have really such a huge preponderance of evidence that the person who is guilty of X crime, X moral crime, really should be holding it. Like they, the contempt is, you're right when you hold them in contempt. This is, you have so much evidence for this. At the same time, you kind of keep an open mind about evidence that might dissuade you um, from holding them in contempt, that you've changed this sort of position or that, you know, that that's at least possible. Um, and that uh, it's not a contempt that should foreclose something like forgiveness. Because if you're open-minded enough to change your assessment of someone, then obviously forgiveness is something that might flow from that. Um, we could go into detail about how this form of contempt that's legitimate or legit being legitimated might be expressed. We can, we can crunch the detail if you like. But what's fascinating for us, even if we were to accept this, and to be clear, I don't think Scott and I do, mm. but even if we were, something really interesting happens when you go through the kind of restraint that is required to hold someone in contempt in this legitimate way. It's quote unquote legitimate way. And that is 
that it requires a level of restraint and a level of knowledge. Because you really are, when you're condemning someone in this way, you're putting yourself in a position of kind of quasi-divine judgment of them, aren't you? You're saying, I know your soul so thoroughly that I can determine I have nothing to, to hear from you, that I don't need to take you seriously. It requires such a level of constraint that we can, sorry, restraint, that we can only really assess whether this is in any way realistic or realizable once we consider the context, the circumstances in which we are passing these judgments on one another. And here, unfortunately, we lead ourselves necessarily into a consideration of things like, what does media do to the way in which we hold each other in contempt? What does social media do to the way in which we regard one another? When we pass these judgments, how well-grounded is our knowledge of the person that we're judging? How, how well-grounded can it be? If they are some kind of public caricature that sort of floats in and out of our vision as they commit some kind of moral sin according to our own lights, how restrained can we really be in that circumstance? Do we observe in the public debate that we have, we really observe a preparedness to leave ourselves open to further evidence that might say, oh no, there's a certain sincerity on the part of that person. I withdraw the contempt that I hold from them. I mean, I suppose these are judgments that I can leave to each person, right? Mm. Each one of us can, can reach these judgments. I guess all I can say, if I may be so bold on our behalf, Scott, is we find it really, really hard to imagine that that would be an accurate description of the way that public discourse works, that it still has embedded within it any kind of restraint that facilitates um, a kind of more measured version of contempt, if such a contempt can be truly said to exist. Before we bring in our guest, yeah. one last little point, just to drive home what Willie has just said. I don't think I've ever said this to him, so maybe this might surprise yeah. you. Good. The temptation that drives contempt of being contemptuous towards others, those with whom we disagree radically. The temptation that drives expressions of contempt is the same temptation that drives people into the arms of conspiracy theories. Just think about it. What does a conspiracy theory do? It explains everything, doesn't it? It gives you certain knowledge of the world. It lets you see all of the strange and bewildering information that's coming at you from all these different directions, and it lets you say, I know it. I don't have to listen to that. That's just official propaganda. I don't have to listen to that. Those are just Biden bulk pay-per-view liberals who are going to, you know, recite the party line anyway. I don't have to listen to that. Don't have to listen to that. This lets me explain the entire world. Contempt does exactly the same thing for human beings. I don't have to listen to you. You're a card-carrying, daily mail-reading, right-wing, crypto-fascist, misogynist, bigot. And it explains everything all the way down. An argument comes up in your social media feed. Who's it written by? Who's it being promoted by? Don't have to read that. That's being promoted by crypto-fascist, misogynist, Daily Mail, Australian reading, right? It's the same logic. It's the same thing. It explains everything. And because it explains everything, it lets you essentially put up your epistemic and moral filters on the highest possible setting. There is nothing that that person can say that I need to hear. There's nothing that person says that I can believe. Whatever they say on the surface of things, I know what their real motivations are. However much they might 
apply an urbane face to the argument they're putting, as reasonable as it might say. I don't believe it because I know what their real agenda is. It's the same temptation. Both are equally corrupting. Both are terrible ways of looking at the world. Both are horrible ways of construing our fellow human beings. Shall we bring in a guest? Yeah. Of course, there is much that could be said in opposition to what we've outlined, and what we can do there is really only a sketch. So let's bring in someone who might take us to task and see where that leads, shall we? All right. You are listening to The Minefield uh, on RN. Um, Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. And we are about to be joined by, I think, a wonderful guest on The Minefield. Yes, yes, indeed. Karen Jones is a philosopher. She's an associate professor in philosophy. Great to be here. Thanks, guys. Uh, she's at the University of Melbourne. Uh, she's one of, she's a great friend of this show. She's a, an incisive mind. She agrees with everything that we've written in the essay, so we had to have her <laughs> as our guest. Um, look, I, I just want to start with the communicative dimension of contempt, which is something we've kind of talked about, but we haven't really gone too much. So anger is something that one can feel. It's very hard to suppress that one is feeling angry, but you can, right? Sure. Contempt in order to be contempt is slightly different. Contempt communicates itself towards the object of that contempt as a way of signaling disfavor, yeah, but also as a way of signaling maybe belonging on different moral planes, or you've fallen out of what we accept as a society. Contempt is beginning to sound very, very much like shame yes. there to me. So how do you think they might be different, or are they? I think they're very different, and it was actually thinking about the difference between shaming and contempt that led me to think with contempt we need not so much to focus on the overall assessment or evaluation of the person, but to focus instead on the way in which in holding someone in contempt you're saying, I'm not answerable to you. So, you know, I, like many Australians, was gobsmacked to find that Scott Morrison, entirely in secret, had appointed himself minister for pretty much everything. And I wanted to say, gosh, that shows, even though it was secret, so we didn't know at the time, so it wasn't immediately communicative, but gosh, that shows such contempt for the Australian people shows contempt for political organisations and institutions, the Westminster system, and showed contempt for a bunch of your colleagues who you didn't say this to either. So then what was Scott Morrison doing in doing those things? Not, I think, as McAllister Bell says, saying these people have corrupt characters, uh, they're intrinsically evil, they're beyond the pale. I don't think Scott Morrison was saying that about the Australian electorate. But or, what or, his was, <laughs> or his own cabinet. Or his own government, we hope, right? But what he was unquestionably saying is, I am not answerable to you, and I will not be answerable to you. And that's what I think contempt does at its core, which is also why it looks hierarchical, because you're saying, you are the people I don't have to, you know, give response to, answers to. So you are kind of pushing the people out of your community, your community of discourse, but it is claiming, making a claim about to whom you are answerable, I think. And I think that thinking about that Scott Morrison thing just shows that's a central part of contempt. Though, interestingly, it's not a central part of McAllister Bell's analysis of contempt, which works instead in terms of kind of shaming to the ubermax, right? So shaming is holding someone's uh, character to be 
less than it ought to be and kind of calling on them to pull up their socks. See, right? This is really interesting because this gets very close, what you just described with Scott Morris. This gets very close to what we describe in the essay as patronizing contempt. So, so I mean, contempt doesn't always have to appear vicious. It's not hurling insults, but it is that disparity. It's the idea that I am not answerable to you. There is no account that I need to give. So we often see this, you know, I mean, an example of this could be, say, the forms of benevolent contempt that you often find for the men in many of Jane Austen's novels. Mm. <laughs> I mean, truly, particularly the fathers. I mean, they're, they're not horrible, necessarily some of them are, yeah. but they're not horrible necessarily to the women. But the point is, they're not answerable to the women. So they're trying to be kind, but they are people who have to do everything and to whom nothing can be done. Yes. That, okay, it might not be vicious in the same way that, say, racist contempt is, but it's anti-egalitarian. It's anti-democratic. The question is, is it un- or amoral? It is uh, definitely anti-egalitarian because I'm effectively pushing uh, you outside the community of people to whom I will be answerable. That also makes it massively dangerous in democracy, and I think the contempt showed by Scott Morrison is a deep danger to democracy. We do not want our leaders doing that kind of thing. Does it always have to be based on an assumption that you're morally superior to the other person globally? I don't think it has to be. And that's where these analyses that say, okay, when you're shaming, you're pointing to an aspect of a person's character, you're presupposing we've got some norms against which I can say, lift your game. <laughs> but you are presupposing we've got some norms. Whereas with contempt, you're effectively saying, I'm not answerable to you at all. And so it was really interesting to me as I was, I was reading your essay, it made me think of various forms of fast emotional alchemy. I try to shame you. It's shaming I'm trying to do. I'm appealing to values that I think we might have in common, and I'm saying parts of your disposition are such that you don't respect or recognize those values. Lift your game. Right? And you're supposed to go through some process of internal thinking about this and either reject it right, and say unfair charge right, or lift your game. Right? But it is very disturbing and hurtful to be shamed, and we're seeing this in the online culture. It's easy to react with anger, we're seeing that too, but if you react with contempt, you've cut it off, not at the knees, at the ankles, mm. because you've said, mm. I am not answerable to you, therefore you cannot shame me. Because in shaming, we're assuming at least we're answerable to some collective norms. I'm answerable to you. I could give pushback. But if I have contempt, it's like, no. So I think shame and contempt are quite different things. But I think especially activities of shaming can make people freak out, want to engage in contempt. And then what do you do when someone holds you in contempt? I'm not answerable to you. Well, you're not answerable to me. I'm not answerable to you. <laughs> mm -hmm. This happens, right? And it starts to feed on it, it, itself. And then if we're not answerable to each other, um, there's no point in having conversations because 
why would I bother to listen? Well, you're then practicing a politics that isn't democratic. Yes. It might still be a form of politics. It just doesn't belong in the, the realm of what we would describe properly as democratic. I think the Scott Morrison example is interesting because there was no one who would defend it. But, and I think that says something, right? That says that it, it enacts a species of contempt that is actually quite unusual, <laughs> right? Well, bipartisan contempt. No, no, no I, didn't, I don't mean that. I just mean the contempt that, you know, in, in your formulation there, Karen, you're saying that was a contempt for the Australian people. It was a contempt for his cabinet colleagues, et cetera. Yeah. And for democratic pro processes and expectations. Yes. Yeah. Like, so that's a, that's a kind of a contempt as unanswerability. It's a kind of magisterium. Mm. Okay. Um, that's so unusual in our sort of democratic life that there was no one who would defend it. <laughs> no one, just about no one. I can't think of anybody who said, oh, no, 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 this is fine and absolutely the way it should have... No one was saying that. The reason I think we end up talking about contempt as a more morally inflected thing where it's about moral judgment is mm -hmm. that is the contempt that prevails in our environment that I think people do want to defend. No one wants to defend the magisterial form of contempt you're talking about. Now, the point you make there about the cyclical nature of contempt, you hold me in contempt, I yeah, well, I hold you in contempt. Mm. I think this is a fascinating intervention. I want, I want you to say more about that because I feel like the, the most powerful argument for contempt at the moment is this idea of contempt as an, as an upward yes. thing, right? What you're identifying is, A, the upwardness and downwardness is not necessarily as straightforward as sometimes it's presented. Mm -hmm. But B, even if it could be, it may not be a wise to say nothing of moral form of responding to a contempt that is directed at, at you. Yeah, that's right. Have I summarised that accurately? Can yeah. you unpack that? Um, I don't think we can sometimes, maybe, but there's so many dimensions to think about things. So what is up, what is down, and what is sideways, right? But when you have affective loops, effectively, because some emotions attract other emotions, they're not the same thing, right? But they form a coherent narrative, yeah? And so you can easily go from shaming to feeling shame, to anger, to contempt, right? Then you get contempt back at you. Then we've next, our next step is anger. Um, we're going to have rage, we're going to have disdain, follow, and these aren't all exactly the same things, but they're going to be activated in a kind of narrative unfolding by the logic of the situation, whatever it is. Yeah? And maybe the logics vary a little bit if it's contempt up or contempt down or contempt sideways, but they do wind up unfolding in a familiar narrative. Uh, I do want to say, though, I'll just say this. You said, was I going to do any counterpoints? Basically, the like, not, but here's one. White supremacists are contemptible, <laughs> and I am not answerable to them. Now, and then you go like, but wait, isn't being ethically open to other people always about admitting that we are each of us always answerable to the other, right? With white supremacy, dudes asked and answered for the last couple of hundred years. And this isn't to condemn people who hold these views to a life beyond the pale, because I think you can hold people in contempt and domains. So I don't, and this is again against uh, McAllister Bell, I don't think it's a globalizing or totalizing phenomenon. But I think white supremacy no longer requires answering in public space.
And I really hope there are some friends and people who are involved in de-radicalisation who can answer white supremacy in private space. But it doesn't need answering in public space because asked and answered. Do you know what's fascinating, though, about that? There are so many things that are fascinating about that. Let's get rid of white supremacy from that sentence and replace it instead with uh, radical Islamism. Yeah. Where exactly the same argument prevailed through the war on terror era um, and was offered primarily by those who would identify as being on the conservative side of politics. Mm. And what the response you got from those who would identify more as progressive was, well, this is a silly way of looking at this problem because the question is not, do you like radical Islamist (laughs) ideology? The question is, what is it that makes that attractive to kids who get radicalised, et cetera? In other words, their argument was a resistance of contempt Mm. in that situation. It was to say, well, you... You shouldn't be. It is wrong to just write people off. Um, I'm glad you mentioned de-radicalisation, right? Because that's the whole point of de-radicalisation is to say, no, there are human subjects here that ought to be taken seriously. And what's happening is they are having a serious response to something and we need to figure out that something and we need to engage with them in that serious way. What I find fascinating about the white supremacist example is you can see the sides of politics have just switched yep. their epistemic assumptions here, mm. right? The, the argument that, sorry, there, I have nothing to say to you or hear from you because you're just a white supremacist, that's far more likely to come from a progressive voice now. Yeah, and the conservative voice is much more likely to say, well, hang on. <laughs> I mean, these people in certain circumstances, we yeah. need to understand that. And I find the lack of epistemic consistency there really interesting. And I think that reveals something about the nature, perhaps, of of contempt and the ways and the circumstances in which we're prepared to wield it. I guess I want to say it's not the same thing to say that white supremacist positions don't have place in public discourse. And I actually think they don't, right? And I think it has been scary I don't know. I don't actually think there are more white supremacists than before. Perhaps there are. Who knows, right? But it's been scary. Yes, and it's been scary that since Trump, people are much more willing to be open about white supremacist positions, right? But that is different from saying this person is irredeemable, and that's precisely why I want to resist this idea that contempt is about attributing being irredeemable, hopeless, rotten um, to the person, right? But is instead saying democratic positions do not have to be relentlessly answerable to white supremacist critique. It's asked and answered. And then the phrase, go educate yourself, I think, which I know you're really against, I think might even have like a tiny little bit of space, but we're really glad there are people who are willing to help educate people. So I guess because I have this different focus when I'm thinking about contempt. I think I can hold both of those things in place, that we're not answerable to arguments, not because they can't be answered, not because it conflicts with an identity that we have, um, or because the people putting them forward are pernicious and evil, but because asked and answered. And when you rehash 
things in public space again and again, especially uh, when they are hurtful to people in the body politic and leave them feeling the subject of contempt, we can publicly choose to close that down. But I have actually been writing about uh, recruitment to white supremacy and what's so really weird, fascinating and toxic about the phrase, it's okay to be white, because it invites you on an effective journey. Right? Mm. Who said it wasn't okay to be white? Oh, those people there, they're trying to shame me. Oh, how horrible that they're shaming me unfairly. Of course I'm white, and I can't help being white. You know, that's my ancestry, I'm white. So how dare they shame me for this unchangeable property? And then suddenly we're getting sucked into a way of thinking that ultimately we'll be white supremacists. And so how do you stop that? You stop that at several stages earlier. But that doesn't mean saying, you know, freedom of speech requires allowing platforms for these views or constant re-prosecution of already established cases. And that if we don't do that, we are, we are in a sense holding these people in contempt, but not saying you'll be on the pale, but just asked and answered. Just to make one really quick point, I worry on two fronts. Mm. One is part of the presumption here that public debate, public discourse is the only game in town. Sure. And one of the problems with our social media saturated age is that we now view almost the entire task of moral deliberation, moral persuasion, de-radicalization, or whatever. We regard that as being something that's necessarily prosecuted in public. So any hand that you hold out to an opposing side is gonna be slapped by your supporters. If you make any concession to the enemy, then you're somehow letting down your own. Now this is only, this is entirely what happens when moral deliberation is something that's taking place in public. It's just kind of the, this big communicative thing. So I, I, I guess I worry a little bit that so much of our conversation is just sticking with the public. Yeah. At the same time, there are forms of speech that so toxify the common environment. I mean, Jeremy Waldron has referred to hate speech as essentially being like a social environmental threat. There are forms of speech that are so pernicious, that are so contemptuous, that are so hateful, that there are some people who can't find their breath within yes. that. They've got nothing to say because the atmosphere has become so toxic that they're already viewed with suspicion yes. in advance. So I think the task of tending or cultivating the air of our common life has got to be wherever humanly possible, not engaging in and ruling out those forms of argumentation that really do toxify the common air, that break the rules of what's able to be spoken to one another. So that, I think, maybe should become part of the regulative principle of the way that we conduct um, public debate. I guess the, the other thing for me is the lesson I learned from James Baldwin, one of, one of the great novelists of the 20th century, one of the great writers, period. I don't have to say African-American. One of the great writers, one of the great essays. And sorry, and significantly for this topic, yeah. someone that is frequently weaponized on places like social media. As an authoritative voice. As, as someone who legitimates contempt. contempt. Yeah. And it's the reverse, as yeah. I really clearly remember. Yeah. I mean, Baldwin asserted as simply as I'm going to say it now. He warned his brothers and sisters, white and black, once you practice contempt, mm. once you've legitimated contempt by displaying it yourself, you're legitimating contempt to be displayed against you. Yeah. The whole rhetoric that he engaged in his novels and his essays was to refer to human beings as brothers, as sisters. It's not a racial war. It's a civil war. 
A civil war is what happens between brothers. It's not a racial war, as if we're in two different camps. So at every point, refusing to be broken into tribes, at every point, refusing to be categorized by these harsh moral divisions, this becomes one of the ways in which we keep the possibilities of real moral deliberation alive. And just to give one little footnote to that, morality is not meant to check the behavior of monsters. You don't bring a monster into moral account. Morality is the thing that circulates among us. It's part of the air, that we, it's part of our common life. So using moral standards to try to hold what we would all regard as being morally pernicious, anti-democratic monsters to account. I kind of feel like saying, if you use morality for that, you're getting it wrong, you're doing it wrong. Morality is for brothers and sisters within a common community. I'm also though interested in when and how we can bring people who might be at the edge into yeah, that community. Right. Right. Because, you know, there's the monsters perhaps out there um, and the danger of contempt. So I think contempt could be even more dangerous than perhaps you identified because it is like, I'm not answerable to you. Hmm. You're like way out there. Um, and then there's those who we take ourselves to be answerable to, we practice giving reasons and so on. But what about those cases nearer the edge? Right? Have we got ways in our practices where we might push that community broader? Can't ultimately, of course, thought it's every single human being. Um, and I think obviously, though perhaps not with respect to every question, that's what supremacists say. Um, it is every human being. Yeah. Problem is, a lot of these monsters, by the way, have podcasts, and so you have to be <laughs> extra, and, and, and Twitter accounts, so you have to be extra careful. Did I mention this show is available as podcast? Um, <laughs> there is one thing, we are fast running out of time, but there is one element of this, though, I think we need to sound an alarm bell. I mean, far be it from me to sit here and run a defense of white supremacy. I'm not about to do that, <laughs> for very obvious reasons. <laughs> But you see the move, don't you? Yeah, I do. Where once you say, well, this is unacceptable, there's no conversation here, yeah. the fight then becomes about how much you can attach to this label of the already mm. delegitimized, right? Yeah. White supremacy is a good example because the language of what is white supremacist now has expanded so radically as to cover That's all true. kinds, because once white supremacy white supremacy ceases to become, you know, the manifesto of the Ku Klux Klan, mm. and it starts to become the entire system, mm. then anyone who wants to defend or even unwittingly wants to preserve an aspect of the system becomes cast as white supremacist. Sure. And from there, all of the contemptuous derivatives just kind of That's right. flow. So, and to add even the scarier thing, and then you get the alchemy, and then you get failed attempts to shame, um, anger and contempt back. So right. That's true. And you get a perverse kind of legitimation then of white supremacy because people say, well, if you think everything's white supremacist, then well. Yeah, yeah that's right. right. Is there a way to resist that slide, that creep? It's a great question. Contempt is so dangerous, right? So maybe it is so dangerous it should always be ruled out, but every now and again it is actually apt. And when we talk about emotions, we have to distinguish the different dimensions along which they can be assessed. And one is whether it is fitting, right? But another is whether overall it is the useful response. And a third is actually whether overall it is an ideal response and an ideal moral response. And it may actually not be an ideal moral response. But one thing that would help 
um, is marking some philosophical distinctions and making them clear about different views. So it's not everything is in the same bag, right? But also making clear and coming up with a more nuanced ethical vocabulary, right? Because to try and shame someone is quite different than to hold them in contempt. Maybe both are so dangerous, maybe we should just like stop it, I don't know. But having a richer vocabulary to talk about it and therefore to also recognize the mechanisms that can be involved in these transitions, and they're not logical transitions, because contempt doesn't logically entail, I don't know, anger or reverse contempt or whatever, but they are natural transitions in the economy of emotion. And we've actually got a really dangerous economy of emotion going on around now. But also um, a dangerous economy of vocabulary, right? Because yes. you, you want to say, well, we need a better vocabulary. Sure, but the thing that almost earns your stripes as being morally or theoretically serious is to do that expansion of a concept, right? Mm -hmm. It's to say, my insight is so penetrating that I see the pervasiveness of this particular thing. In other words, the broader I can make this, the smarter I am, the more <laughs> insightful I am. And I, that's not an yeah. easy thing. This is morality yeah. is conspiracism. It's morality is conspiracy. Well, to some extent. Or, or is it just good analysis, right? That, that's Usually the argument good analysis is making distinctions. <laughs> so at least right. it is an analytic philosophy, right? It's not grouping together, but it's separating apart. Mm. So maybe. Well, this uh, is the next quarterly essay. It'll be wonderful <laughs> when you write it, Karen. So thank you very much for doing that. Um, we are, I'm afraid, at an end. Thank you very much for your indulgence today. Karen, thank you so much for indulging really us fun. and for being prepared to come along thank and speak. Thank you. Uh, Karen Jones, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Melbourne. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Minefield. We recorded it at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, but next week we'll be back in the studio. Hope you can join us then. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.